I'm Amber Tresca, and this is About IBD. I'm a medical writer and patient educator who lives with a J-pouch due to ulcerative colitis. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 137. Nutrition is difficult enough to manage while living with a digestive condition, but it gets even more confusing after having ileostomy or internal pouch surgery. Most of us could use a little guidance to help us sort through all the information. That's where my guest for this episode comes in. Clemmie Oliver is a registered associate nutritionist and a nutritional therapist who founded the Nutrition and Lifestyle Medicine Clinic. Clemmie was diagnosed with IBD herself as a child, and what is unique about her journey is that she lived with an ileostomy through her tween and teen years. She had J-pouch surgery at 18 before she went to college. After a few years of struggle with her J-pouch, she connected with a nutritionist and was able to improve her pouch function based on the advice she was given. It was then that she realized she was meant to study nutrition herself, and today she uses her personal and professional experience to help patients craft the eating plan that's right for them. Clemmy, thank you so much for coming on about IBD. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thanks so much, Amber, for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, absolutely. You have some really unique experiences that I can't wait to dig into. But first, I would love if you would introduce yourself so the listeners get uh, an opportunity to understand who you are and what your work is. Yeah, of course. So um, I'm Clemmy. I am actually based in London in the UK. I am an IBD patient. So I was diagnosed with colitis, ulcerative colitis, when I was nine years old. And I've been through quite a journey on that. And I think we're probably going to talk about that. Um, I now have a J pouch. uh, And my work is supporting patients with inflammatory bowel disease. So whether that is um, pre-surgery, so perhaps from just when someone's been diagnosed with Crohn's or colitis right the way until perhaps someone's had surgery. Um, So I founded a clinic about five years ago called the Nutrition and Lifestyle Medicine Clinic, and we specialize in supporting patients um, when it comes to diet and lifestyle to to help support their disease. That's incredible. Uh, A lot of patients are looking for someone that has personal experience to also help them through their journey. I think that uh, creates a really great bond and an understanding in, in a way that maybe other people can't quite understand. So I'd love to start with understanding about your IBD journey so far. You were diagnosed so young. I imagine it probably feels like you've had IBD your whole life because you were nine. So can you tell me a little bit about that diagnosis process and what those years were like for you and what you remember about them? Yeah, of course. I was very young and I'm not sure I remember loads about life pre-colitis. And I think also my memory of those years is clear in some parts, but hazy in others. And I think it's our brain's way of kind of coping with the trauma, I suppose, that I went through. So um, I do have memories of it, but some of it's a bit hazy. But I know that um, I was away at school at the time and I started developing symptoms. So I had diarrhea and then I started experiencing blood, but I didn't actually tell anyone about it. And I think that I was probably wasn't really sure what it was. I think I was probably a little bit afraid. And it was actually 
when I was at home that I forgot to flush the loo and um, someone went into the loo and uh, came out. And I remember this bit so clearly. I remember sitting in the kitchen on the floor with my sister playing with our dogs. And my mum came in and said, someone's been to the loo and not flushed it and there's blood in the loo. Who is it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember den- denying it and saying it wasn't me to start with. Mm-hmm. And then eventually just bursting into tears and explaining to my mom and she was like well where's the blood coming from trying to get an Mm -hmm. idea and then very quickly she took me straight to the doctor Mm -hmm. um so I went to our um GP so what's your kind of family doctor um and then quite quickly I was taken straight to A&E um so the emergency room um and then I was diagnosed reasonably quickly after that Mm -hmm. all right I have a couple of questions about this story yeah sure (laughs) um You were quite ill with ulcerative colitis. And so that probably had an effect on your parents and your siblings and a lot of other things. So how did that change your life over the next few years while you were still at home? Yeah, of course. I think I'm, I feel very lucky and very fortunate that my parents and my siblings were incredibly supportive. My, um, dad continued to work, but my mum wasn't working at the time. So she was able to be with me the whole time in hospital and dad came and visited me when he could. And my brother and sister, they were at school, but when they could, they'd come and see me as well. And I also remember when I had my J pouch surgery, my brother working in London in the, in the city at the time, but my hospital being on the outskirts and him having to get like two tubes and like two buses to get to come and see me. And he came like every other day after work when I was in hospital for the two weeks. And one time he's a bit of a comedian and, um, he always comes, he's like, he says his role is to like bring humor to every situation. Um, because yeah, he feels like that's the kind of thing that helps cheer everyone up. Anyway, he made me laugh so much and I was in so much pain that I was like half lying, (laughs) half laughing, half crying. And, um, my mom and the nurse was like, I think you need to leave. And the poor guy, he'd spent all that oh. time traveling and he'd only been there for like 10 minutes. Anyway, my mom like took him out for dinner and, and things like that. But, um, but no, I think I've been, I've been super lucky that um, I'm, sh- I am sure that it really had quite an impact on my siblings and my parents as well. And I think it's only now that I'm older that I can um, kind of reflect and look back at how hard it must have been for them all. I think everyone always says, oh, it's it's so hard for the patient. Oh, it must have been so hard for you. You've been through such an ordeal. But when you're the patient, mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but you just kind of do it. You just mm-hmm. put one foot in front of the other. And I actually think that maybe it's harder watching and being a family member and not being able to do anything about it, basically. Oh, I agree completely. And I, I don't think I've ever met anyone that's said the reverse. Uh, like, I know how to be in the hospital bed. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to be in the chair next to the hospital bed. No. It's a lot more difficult. And when it is your child, that is a whole other level of helplessness. Yeah. Right. So you were diagnosed at nine. I know just from your blog and about your story that you did have 
colectomy surgery and you lived with an ileostomy for a time. What ages was was that situation? Yeah, of course. So um, I spent, they spent two years trying to, I had pancolitis. Mm -hmm. um, so the whole of my colon was affected and it was pretty aggressive disease. Um, and I was on steroids for more time, I think, than I was off them in those two mm. years. And they tried lots of different medications. Although saying that actually maybe not loads of different medications because this yeah. was all before the era of amazing biologic medications right. and yeah. some of the other immunosuppressants. Mm -hmm. So really I tried mesalazine and mm -hmm. steroids and then I think basically the doctors said to my mum, look, the next step is cyclosporine. Um, there's some pretty crazy side effects for someone so young. And yeah. what we're doing is just putting off the inevitable, which mm. is her disease isn't getting under control. And we are going to be faced with surgery mm. like sooner rather than later, probably. And my parents made the decision not to go down that route in terms of that those medications and to go down the route of surgery. And actually, yeah. so it was pretty much two years from diagnosis that I ended up having the surgery. And by that stage, I was pretty unwell. Um, mm. So I was about two and a half stone and I was 11 years old. Mm -hmm. um, and it got to the stage. And again, this is a bit that I remember really clearly is that I like got up one day, went downstairs, had my normal like bowl of cereal and then felt really sick and threw it back up and yeah. was like, okay, that's weird. And then tried to eat again and then threw it back up. And then Ooh. every time I tried to eat, it was throwing it up. And I was like, mm, something's not working here. And my mom oh. was like, I think it's time. So we went straight to the hospital and they said like, I think we're going to have to operate but mm -hmm. we don't think that you're actually stable enough or strong enough to withstand the surgery at the moment. So I think I was about a week to 10 days being stabilized in hospital with IV nutrition before mm -hmm. they felt that they, that I was stable enough to operate. Oh, wow. That's just, oh my gosh, that's a lot. Uh, remind me though, <laughs> what is, <laughs> what is two and a half stone in kilograms Ooh, or pounds? That is a really <laughs> good question. Um, hang on. I can really I quickly work it out. It's oh, okay. 15, nearly 16 kilograms. Oh, oh my God. Okay. All right. Yeah. So that was not great. And you were 11 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And so, all right. So what was the conversation around ileostomy versus J pouch? How did that all happen? Because now you live with the, with the J pouch. So how did that go? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting one and something that I've reflected on kind of more recently. So I had the surgery at 11 and then I was just always told when you are 18, we will reverse it. Mm -hmm. And but we want you to grow. We want you to develop. We want you to catch mm -hmm. up with the stunted growth that you've had and just mm -hmm. finish school and whatever. So I am not sure that I ever realized that having a J pouch was a choice. Ah, okay. It was always presented to you as this is what we're going to do for you. Yeah, okay. of course. And I, um, I don't think it would have changed my decision. So I would have right. still gone ahead and had the J pouch. But I think it was, yeah, it was just an interesting one that I think it was always presented to me like that. That's just the next step that happens in your journey. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're in a unique position, I think, to compare between having an ileostomy and having a J pouch because you had the ileostomy for so long before moving to the J pouch. Yes. That must have been a real 
trip to have that first bowel movement after you've got your J pouch. Um, do you have anything that you can share about uh, contrasting the two? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, seven years without going to the loo and then going to the loo again was a pretty wild experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of the um, contrast, I suppose I found that my ileostomy really gave me my life back. I yeah. was so unwell by the end. I couldn't do anything. I was taken out of school in the end and homeschool for a yeah. bit. I couldn't do anything. So yeah. actually having my ileostomy really gave me my life back, which was great. But there was always that and actually, I had a I had a really good journey with my ileostomy. I had very few leaks, although, as always, they did happen now and mm -hmm. again. Generally, I had a really good experience with it, and um, I was able to eat most things. I didn't go and stay at friends' houses that often. Mm -hmm. So just because I didn't quite feel comfortable doing that at that age. And I didn't really talk about my experience either. No one really knew I had an ileostomy, mm -hmm. um, which I now looking back on it, if I did it, if I, if I had my time again, I'd talk about it loads. Um, <laughs> but in terms of the contrast, like I am really such an advocate for both. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's so many positive to an ileostomy. Um, I'm a really real advocate of a J pouch, but I have had a really good experience. Yeah. And I think that that's something that I feel very lucky that I've had a really good experience um, and that I haven't had lots of complications. And through the research, but also through my work with lots, lots and lots of J pouch patients, mm -hmm. um, I do know that um, lots of people do have complications. Mm -hmm. So I think... I think, yeah, it's there's um, pros and cons to both for sure. But I think I'm very much an advocate of personal decision. So if someone is like, do you know what? I just don't want to take the risk of maybe having complications with a pouch. And I've got super comfortable with my ileostomy and actually I'm pretty happy with it. If someone wants to stay with it, then I think that that's a great choice. As long as it's what they want to do, I think that's a great decision. But if someone's like, do you know what? I'll always be thinking, what if? Or I want to mm -hmm. give it a go. I'd always say, yeah, absolutely. I would 100% recommend giving it a go if that's what you want to do. You came to a point in your life where you thought, I need to maybe pay more attention to what I'm eating and what I'm doing and how this affects me. And then it, it kind of changed your life and, and changed, I think, also what you do for a career, if that's right. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I post J pouch surgery six months later, went to university, um, had a great time, just did everything a normal uni student does. Really, I would say looking back on it, I probably didn't look after my body like I should have done. And I, think, I was going to say, if you're a normal student at college, then yeah, probably of not. And I, I look back now and I think, oh my gosh, I was six months out of J pouch surgery yes. and yes. my pouch then got such a battering. And I think for me, it was a bit of a like, I'm free. <laughs> like <laughs> oh, seven yeah, years sure. of yeah. leading up to this and then yeah. I can do this anyway. So I um, just ate and drank everything. And actually I was told all the way through my journey with my colitis, with everything and with the J pouch as well, that um, the diet didn't make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, and that it really didn't matter what I ate mm -hmm. basically. So, and I very much lived by that. I, I basically just ate what I wanted 
quite a lot of rubbish food um, <laughs> and uh, not many fruits and vegetables um, and things mm-hmm. like that. And there was a point in my, I think towards the end of my first year of university when I, I got um, something called the norovirus, like a really nasty yeah. gastroenteritis. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty unwell for like a week or so. And then basically just never felt the same again. And mm. I lost loads of weight and I my pouch function changed and I started losing my hair. And I was like, oh this is so weird. Mm-hmm. And I went to the gastroenterologist and they ran a load of tests and they said, yeah, there's no pouchitis, no inflammation in your pouch. Your pouch is looking fine. All your other bloods are all right. Like we're giving you a clean bill of health. And I was like, hang on a minute though. I feel awful. Like I'm mm-hmm. bloated all the time. My pouch functions really bad and I'm just exhausted and I feel nauseous every time I eat and all of those kind of things. And it was actually mm-hmm. my mum who said, who's always been like looking at other options outside of medical yeah. treatment alongside yeah. medical treatment to, to support me. And she said, look, I know that you're the, we've always been told that it doesn't make any difference, but let's go and see someone. Let's like, I'm going to book you in to see a nutritionist and let's see whether it makes any difference. And I was like, Oh, I've got nothing to lose. It's not going to help, but I'll go. Um, and thank you, mum, for doing that because quite literally that appointment changed my life. It opened to my eyes. It opened my eyes to the fact that it really does make a difference to not only your pouch function, but actually your overall health, what you put in your mouth um, and what you yeah. put in your body. And yeah. within a couple of weeks of making some really quite simple dietary changes, I mm-hmm. felt like a different person. And that really started my journey into exploring how I could support myself and my pouch better through nutrition. And then I thought, well, hang on a minute. I've been told throughout this whole journey that diet doesn't make a difference. And I've lived by that. How many other people are there out there who have that experience as well? And I then did some research and realized lots of people and I thought to myself, okay, my life's been changed and I want to change others in the same way. And I was working in a job at the time that I didn't really enjoy and I couldn't see a future in it. And I thought, you know what, I want to help. I want to help other patients like me. I want to Mm -hmm. help others the way that I've been helped. And Mm -hmm. so I did a complete career change. Mm-hmm. I went back to studying. I went back to uni. I've now done five years extra in terms of studying. I finished uh, a master's last year and I set up my clinic five, year, um, five years ago. Um, I absolutely love the work that I do. And I'm mm-hmm. so lucky that something, I guess, something really bad <laughs> in terms of having yeah. colitis, having yeah. loads of surgeries and stuff, that uh, that's then turned into something that I find the most rewarding thing. And I absolutely love working with other patients. You know, I don't want anyone to go through any of this, but at the same time, you've come through it and you've learned so much and now you can help other people. And that's just like the best, that's just like the best outcome, you know, honestly. Yeah. And I think 
it's one of those things as well that you said right at the beginning of our conversation about patients like like it's nice to meet someone else who has the disease or has had your experience because there's that yeah. when you meet someone who have has IBD there's that like immediate just connection and that immediate like unsaid understanding of what that person might be going through and that's why patients come to us so there's me and I also have a lovely dietitian who works with me called Jess she also has a quite a reasonably similar journey to me in terms of IBD and mm -hmm. and now is a dietitian specializing in gastroenterology and helping IBD patients so and people come to us because they know that we I guess get it in inverted commas that's what people say they come to us because we get it right right totally in a in a way there's a shorthand and there's an understanding that I think you eliminate a whole lot of questions and conversation because it's just not necessary so no, exactly. you, you could sort of immediately get down to work I think to and I completely agree with you and um, say a patient might be explaining to me something about a symptom and I'm like I get it I understand what you're talking about yeah mm -hmm. that's fine and mm -hmm. they're like I know that you get it because I know that you have been through it and I'm and I've obviously seen it lots in clinic too so mm -hmm. um, but it's I think we provide a unique service to our patients that we have the qualifications and the clinical experience, but also that personal experience, which doesn't impact on the advice that we're giving, but just gives us that empathy with patients. Right, right. I'm going to ask you something that I've never asked another nutritionist, but I'm just wondering about. Okay. Um, so, all right. Do, do you manage your own care or do you talk to somebody from time to time to try to figure things out with your J pouch? Yeah, I think that's such a good question. Um, I haven't um, had someone support me for a while, um, mm -hmm. but I did see, um, so I saw that nutritionist um, a few years ago and then I saw a dietitian, um, of, gosh, probably about six years ago now mm -hmm. who helped me a little bit. But I am not afraid if I have challenges or issues to go and seek out um, help from someone else. And I think with the knowledge that I have in my area, there's a lot I can navigate myself. But yeah. I also know that sometimes actually it's just really useful to get someone else's perspective. So I normally manage it myself, but if it's something else or if it's something else nutrition related, then I will seek help from someone else. Mm -hmm. So, all right, you are going to have a unique perspective, I think, also on helping people manage their sort their day to day lives. So what do you do for yourself or what do you tell your clients when they're out at a party? They may not have a good food choice there or there's not a bathroom available. There's not a toilet available. Do you have any tips to share? Yeah, of course. I think um, if it's a specific situation like being at a party, um, sometimes it takes a bit of kind of pre-planning or um, kind of pre-thinking about going to the party. So um, sometimes if I'm aware that at that party there isn't going to be any food that I can eat or that I don't feel comfortable eating, I can eat most things. There's some things that I 
don't tolerate and that's really different in terms of the different foods that people can and can't tolerate that tends to be really different with different people with j pouches there's mm-hmm. one like common phenomenon um which is shown in the research but also i see it in clinic quite a lot which is coffee um and caffeine mm-hmm. um some people lots of people find that they tend it tends to kind of speed up pouch function and and loosen things up a bit I find personally that it does, but some people actually are totally okay with it. But um, I've segued a bit off there. But in terms of kind of coming back to the question, I would always, if there was some, if I felt like there wasn't anything I could eat at the party, what I would do is make sure I had something to eat before I went. Mm-hmm. If it was a dinner, I would generally look to speak to the host perhaps before I went mm-hmm. um, I think it really depends on the situation so if I'm going to a friend's house or if it's like a work dinner then I would always talk about my dietary requirements so that hopefully there'd be something there that I can eat um, but if it's like going out to a restaurant then again I might have a look at the menu in advance and just see if there's anything um, on the menu that's okay so that I when I go to the that event that I feel more confident so sometimes perhaps it takes a bit more pre-planning but then when I go there then I feel relaxed and I don't feel stressed about being put in that situation and in terms of going out to eat the advice that I often say to people is like if you can be in charge of where you go and you know there's somewhere that does food that you can eat then perhaps why not suggest that to whoever you're going with And the other thing is have a look at the menu online before you go. Um, If there's something you're not sure about, phone the restaurant, ask them. Most of the time, they're really happy to help. And then you can go, again, you can go into that situation, reduce that anxiety, reduce that stress around that. And also, if you get to the restaurant and you haven't managed to do any of that, you can always speak to the waiters about perhaps change swapping some ingredients out or changing things and that doesn't have to be really obvious that can be something that you can just pull them to one side quietly and do because I know some people don't want to draw attention to it so there's loads of ways that we can manage that and sometimes it just takes a bit of pre-planning but it it really depends on the situation that you're in as to what might be appropriate to do. Yeah from my own experience I think work dinners are the most challenging when people don't know your situation, I still don't have a good response. So I don't know. It's just really, it's kind of strange trying to manage other people's thoughts around it when it just seems like it would be great if people would just worry about themselves and not what other people are eating. Yeah, of course. And look, I, in my view, it's never appropriate to comment on what someone's eating or drinking, but lots of people do. They can't help themselves or, and actually that's just really awkward for the person who is receiving that comment because then it draws attention to it and it makes you, perhaps you felt uncomfortable about that before and then it draws attention to it. And I guess it really depends on your personality as to how you might respond to that. So some people might use humor to respond to it. Some people might actually call that person out on that and Mm -hmm. say, it's really not appropriate for you to be asking me why. And some people, perhaps like their boss, maybe it's worth having a conversation before you go out just saying, I'm not going to be drinking tonight because um, I do have bowel issues. And maybe that's something you've talked to them about before. 
So yeah, I guess there's kind of different ways of handling it, whether um, some people feel like they can be open and honest about their medical conditions and things with their boss. Some people feel like they can't. So uh, yeah, I think it really depends on your personality. I, <laughs> I'd i call that person out. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. It, well, when it happened, it's happened many times in my life and, and at different stages in my life. When it happened, I was in my mid-20s and I literally did not know how to respond. Today, I would absolutely say, mind your business. Yeah. Uh, what what I'm eating and drinking is, is None of your not a concern of yours. Um, although there's probably nobody across the world that doesn't know that I live with a chain pouch, <laughs> thanks to the work that I do in this show and everything else. If yeah. somebody knows about your situation, they can help you out and sort of make excuses or, you know, because I know for myself, I will, like, I won't cross the street for myself. But if another person tells me that they're dealing with the situation, I will move boulders for them. So I think that's worth considering as well. Yeah, I think that is such a good point is like, hopefully in the situation that you're in, you'll have a buddy, you'll have someone who knows your situation or someone who, who's got your back and who can deflect the conversation away because you may yeah. not feel like you can call that person out and that's totally okay. But actually maybe someone else can do that for you or someone else can change the subject or something like that. Yes. Um, but absolutely, my, um, my sister is such a great advocate in terms of bathrooms for me so we talk about our ludar so like rather than a radar it's, we call toilets loose nice. here so our yeah. ludar and our ludars are on point and um wherever we go and still now wherever we go she's like there's a loo over there and i'm like cool clocked it got it and um <laughs> so it's just it's really good having an advocate like that and I'm, I'm absolutely the same as you if I know some someone's like whether it's IBD related or not if something's happening yeah. for someone I will like help protect them I will help them make sure they've got everything they need and support that because I know what it's like to be in that position Not to give away everything that you do in your professional life, we want to leave something on the table, uh, but what advice do you have for J-Pouchers as they're considering their diet? And you can include ileostomy in this too, because I feel like they might be pretty similar, but maybe maybe not. With J-Pouch, you have that, um, I don't know, I, I call it taco butt, where you have that acid you know, especially in the beginning, there's a lot of like acidic stool and you're dealing with your with uh, skin issues at, at that point. But what kind of diet tips do you uh, in general sort of give to people as they're as they're starting out in adjusting to their new bodies? Yeah, of course. I think it's a really good question. And what I would say is like above everything else, no matter what you're told, diet makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And although the research is really in its infancy and there's still some kind of slight missing connections in terms of understanding the role of diet and how that affects pouch health, um, it seems to be that, that diet can make a difference to someone's risk of pouchitis, for example. Mm -hmm. um, we need, as I said, we need more data on that, but 
no matter whether well, if we take the pouch out of it, diet matters for our overall health and our other disease risks going forward. So mm-hmm. our risk of things like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all of those kind of things, diet and our lifestyle really matters to those. So mm-hmm. don't let anyone ever tell you that diet doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. What we know at the moment is that um, it's really common for people to avoid foods, whether that's food groups or specific foods when they have an ileostomy, but also with a J pouch as well. Mm-hmm. And I always explore with my patients why they're avoiding certain foods. Is that mm-hmm. because they found through process of trial and error that that food really doesn't work for them? in which case maybe that's okay. Or actually, is it that they were told right at the beginning of their journey, just after surgery, that they couldn't eat that thing or they couldn't Mm -hmm. eat that food group, Mm -hmm. but they were never given other advice to change that as their bowel healed and as things um, got better? Or is it something that they read somewhere? Mm -hmm. And that's why they're avoiding that food. So I always go through that with my patients. If anyone's avoiding anything, we go through each of the foods and we talk through them. So why is it that you're avoiding that? Let's talk about that a bit more. And also if something's causing symptoms, usually there's a there's an explanation behind that. So there's a reason why that that food is perhaps triggering symptoms for you, whether that's that butt burn that we were talking about, I call it butt burn, mm-hmm. or whether that is kind of looser um, pouch output or anything like that. So it's really important. I often see that patients are given advice post-surgery to follow a low fiber, low residue diet to let the bowel heal. But mm-hmm. often people are, maybe they're told at their kind of follow-up session, yeah, you're fine to start eating anything you want now. Or um, maybe then diet isn't even approached. So people are stuck on this low fiber, low residue diet, or they're told that they can eat anything, but they're terrified. And they're afraid to start eating new foods and trying new textures for fear of causing some kind of problem. So I think there's a real lack of guidance and support in transitioning away from that post-operative diet onto one that's more, much more supportive for not only our overall health, but our pouch health going forwards. It is really important to, um, to know that changes do need to be made and that it's not necessary to avoid lots of foods when you have a J pouch. There's lots of people I know who eat everything and nothing has an impact on their pouch. There's some people who I work with who lots of things might do. Mm-hmm. I guess going back to kind of what the advice is. So generally where the research is pointing towards a Mediterranean style dietary pattern being useful. So including things like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds. Well, lots of people that I know with a J pouch would go, but I can't, and with a stoma actually go, but I thought I couldn't eat those things or whatever. And actually there are absolutely ways that we can enjoy a Mediterranean style of eating but in a way that is more friendly to a pouch and to a stoma by, for example, adapting textures of things. So for example, someone might say nuts really don't agree with me, or maybe someone's got some kind of complication like a stricture and they can't enjoy them. But that doesn't mean that they can't ever have nuts ever. It just means that we need to adapt those textures. So something, for example, like a nut butter, a smooth nut butter. So smooth peanut butter, smooth almond butter is 
absolutely fine for those patients to have Mm -hmm. or using ground nuts or nut flours in baking. It means you can still get the lovely nutrients from those foods and still include them, but in a way that's not going to cause any issues internally. So that's, I guess, just one example is there are loads of ways that we can adapt the textures of foods to help them be better tolerated for people with stomas, but also people with pouches. And that in itself then helps pouch health, but also helps long-term health as well. Mm -hmm. You know, that you're the first person I think I've ever heard talk about the nut flowers, for instance, because I do see those referenced a lot by dietitians and, and in recipes and such. I don't have a problem with regular wheat flour, so I never really thought too much about using an alternative type of flour, but I also never considered that they might contain nutrients, and that's why you might try, try them out and try them in your baking. So that's a really important point, I think. Yeah, definitely. And look, um, I'm a great advocate of things like smoothies and soups and stuff like that to get all these things in as well. If we're blending those textures up, it means that we still get to enjoy all those nutrients. And um, things like our nuts are full of really good healthy fats and um, minerals as well. Um, And that is really helpful for our overall health as part of a healthy Mm -hmm. balanced diet. Um, So including those in things like baking, and it doesn't mean that you can't have the wheat flowers, but maybe like just add them in and experiment with them a bit and have a bit of fun with Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, that's okay. You've convinced me. So because before I was like, I'm not going to get almond flour, come on. (laughs) But there's definitely a a place for it. So I want to touch for a minute more on this idea that people are often told while they're living with IBD, fulminant colitis, you know, that they should avoid certain things and they should go on that low fiber diet. I think people are often given a list of no-no foods rather than being given a list of foods that they can eat. That just seems to be the approach. But what does a person do when they are a little fearful of expanding their diet? Yeah, I think just coming back to a point um, that you made about people often being given lists of things they can't have, it's a real bugbear of mine um, about this like obsession online, but also this thing in hospitals as well of like, this is what you can't have and always focusing on exclusion. Actually, I really think we should always be flipping the tables and saying like, actually, let's focus on what you can have because actually psychologically, that's so much easier and more supportive and more helpful. Mm -hmm. So with our patients, we always provide first and foremost lists and ideas of foods and recipes that people can enjoy, but we also to help support them as well, give them lists of foods that actually for the time being, maybe it's not quite right for you to have that. However, you can still enjoy it, but adapt it in this way and you might still be able to tolerate it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I think that's it. Um, It's changing the narrative to a more positive view of food rather than always a negative restrictive view because that negative restrictive view um, leads to fear around foods. And we work with so many people who are ready to transition or want to transition or want to change their diet, but are so scared Mm -hmm. that they don't know where to start and they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And I have been there myself as well. So anyone out there listening, I, I hear you. I, it's not a nice situation to be in and that's where it can be really useful to get support. But what 
I often suggest kind of some like general stuff for people to do is I guess it's making sure that you're in the right place in terms of your disease and things like that and making sure there's not anything that you definitely should be avoiding for medical reasons. So Mm -hmm. for example, if you have a narrowing in the bowel or a stricture, then actually keeping to that adaptive fiber diet is a good idea. Mm -hmm. But actually if there's no complications, you've been given the all clear and they've said like you're absolutely fine to start increasing fibers a bit more, then just um, start with cooked foods and small amounts, first of all, as well. So often we think, oh, we just have to go in with a whole portion, but actually go in with like a quarter or a third of a portion to start with. So Mm -hmm. if it was, for example, broccoli, let's use broccoli as an example. So (laughs) yeah, great. So maybe that's something that someone may have been avoiding, but broccoli is actually like the florets of broccoli well coat to find to have on a um, kind of adapted fiber diet, but maybe it's something that someone's avoided. So what I would always suggest to someone is just you go for one floret to start with, Mm -hmm. um, chop off the stalk and just have the head, so the floret bit, and just steam Mm -hmm. it really well until it's really nice and soft. And just chew that really well and have that alongside a meal that you know that you're absolutely fine to have. And nine times out of 10, it will be absolutely fine. Um, And then next time you have that, maybe you have two florets, but still nice and soft and really well cooked. And then just work your way up to a more full portion. Then you can work your way up to having a little bit more of the stalk and maybe then have not having it so like mushy and mm-hmm. um, soft, but maybe then a bit more firm. But that's how we can build confidence, but also help to understand maybe what foods don't agree with us um, or not. So I'd always suggest, yeah, going slowly, doing things one at a time to start with. And then you might get your confidence up and you might then feel actually that you can start introducing things a bit more quickly and um, that's absolutely fine. But just to start with, and it can be really helpful as well to to understand that foods can sometimes cause the symptoms, but it's not anything to do with inflammation or mm. it's not anything bad that's happening. It's just how that's reacting with our intestines and the things inside our intestines that maybe is, for example, producing gas and things like that. It's not doing any harm. It can sometimes be a bit unpleasant in terms of symptoms. And that's where working with someone like us can really help you to understand, okay, why is that food doing that for you? And what can we do to make that better for you? Mm -hmm. But it is really important as well that we don't neglect the fact that if we have fears around introducing foods, that that in itself can cause the symptoms. Mm -hmm. So our brains are so powerful and that connection between our brain and our gut, there's so much research going into that area now and it's so fascinating But we can actually cause pain and discomfort and things like that in our intestines, just thinking about it and being in a, in that kind of fight or flight and stress state. So if we're really, really, really worried about trying a new food and we're really, really anxious about that and we think it's definitely going to cause me symptoms. And so we're in that fight or flight and we're stressed about it when we're eating it, when we have it, it might cause symptoms, but it's not the food. It's the fact Mm. that we're really fearful about it. Mm-hmm. And that's what's causing the symptoms because stress has a huge impact on the way that our bowels move and the way that our bowels function. So again, that's where it can be really helpful to 
get support with how you do that if fear of food is something that's really um, impacting you. And um, as I said, we work with lots of patients like that. And often when they leave us, they're like eating lots of different foods and feeling much more confident and everything about it. So yeah, it is, it's a really important thing. And just, I guess, going back to another thing is that low fiber diets are something that are really useful post-surgery, but it's often something that is given out too liberally um, Mm -hmm. when people have active disease, for example, Mm -hmm. and the understanding around kind of low residue, low fiber diets, if people aren't given, given information about it, it can be quite confusing. And actually the data that we have at the moment doesn't back the use of low fiber diets. Um, That's really quite an old school kind of thinking around what we should be doing to support us. Now, as I said, there are patients where it is appropriate to follow a low fiber diet, Um, but actually just sometimes adapting fibers and um, changing certain types of fibers can be enough because we're understanding more and more the really important role that fiber plays in actually helping to support our gut health and to um, maybe also help to reduce inflammation in the bowel as well and also to keep the bowel functioning properly. So again, um, I just wanted to put that in there because it's something that's often still advised for people to do, even though the research is suggesting that that's not the best way forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of things we did back in my day are definitely, you know, the bowel rest. And I mean, there were times when I ate nothing but jello for weeks. So that's like not great. And uh, we don't want people to do that anymore. You know, let's no. not do that anymore. <laughs> so let me ask you really briefly, just in broad strokes, if someone does come to work with you, it's not a forever situation, right? But how many times might you work with somebody? I know there's probably a whole spectrum, but what might that look like? Yeah, of course. So we, it really depends on where that patient is on their journey and how much support they need. Um, the minimum that I would see someone would be twice. Mm-hmm. I always talk to someone on the phone um, or on Zoom who is interested in working with us. So I can hear more about them. They can get to know me. We can work out if we're a good fit. But I can also understand a bit about their journey so far and how much support I think that they might need. So they, I can manage their expectations about how much time we might need to spend together. But the minimum I would work with someone would be um, two sessions, which would be about um, four to six weeks. And the longest I've worked with someone is over two years, Mm. maybe three years. So it really depends on first and foremost, I guess, how much support I feel that person might need, but also how much support that patient feels like they need as well. Um, But also where they're at in their journey, all of those kind of things. And sometimes people just like to keep checking in and keep checking that they're doing the right things. And um, sometimes we're waiting on people changing medications or they're having flare-ups or whatever. So it might mean that we'd work with someone for a little bit longer. So it really depends, but I'd see someone on a minimum of a two-session basis. So, Clemmy, everyone who's listening can tell that you are in the UK. Uh, tell me about some of the things that you 
like to do? I read that you enjoy hiking around the Scottish Highlands. That might be something that people who are facing ileostomy or J-pouch surgery might not think would be available to them. Tell me how you manage that and, and what you like about it. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, if I'm not um, living in London in the city, my favorite thing is to escape to the country. And I'm really lucky that my um, family on my dad's side is Scottish and we actually have a place up on the West Coast, which is like the most beautiful place in the I think in the entire world. Um, and I absolutely love climbing the mountains up there and getting out on the hills. And what I would like to say to people is that those things are absolutely accessible for everyone. Our lovely dietitian Jess, who works with me, she cycles um, semi-professionally. She um, skis. She does loads and loads of sporting activities, um, and she has a stoma. So I think we're both advocates for like outdoor pursuits. Um, but in terms of how I manage that, I actually always take toilet roll with me. <laughs> yeah. Normally, also I might adapt my diet a little bit. If I know that I'm going out for quite a long day and I'm not going to be near a loo, I might eat the foods that I know kind of bung me up a bit more or slow yeah. things down for me a little bit more. So I adapt things in that way. Yeah, I will. I will modify my diet as well. Something I might do, which maybe, I don't know, I might think about how much I'm drinking that day too, um, just just to be aware of it. And um, But I mean, I think, I think it, like, you know, regular people might have to consider that as well. So it's probably yeah, not too much different. You know, And I think something just to um, clarify there that's really important is when I say I modify my diet, it's not that I don't eat. Right. It's that I yes. eat because I need to have the energy when I'm walking all day. So um, I need to make sure that I'm eating, but I'm eating foods that I know move through my bowels more slowly, that generally slow down my pouch output. And then you're absolutely right in terms of liquids and Stuff, actually having the right liquids. If you're walking in the heat, we know that dehydration is much more common for people without a colon, so anyone with an ileostomy or a J pouch. So taking rehydration solutions with me, um, as well as water, those are all the things that I definitely consider when I'm doing those walks. Right. Yeah. Maybe having a cup of coffee before you go is might not work. Although yeah, not, not so good. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it. I uh, refuse to give up the coffee. Uh, Clemmy, this has been a fantastic conversation. You are a wealth of information. I want to make sure that everyone can benefit from all of the things that you're putting out online. Where can people find you? Where can they follow you on the interwebs? Yeah, of course. So um, my Instagram is at Clemmy Oliver Nutrition. And um, our website for the clinic is www.nalmnomclinic.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me and for sharing so much about your experiences and your life living with IBD and ileostomy and a J pouch. And again, I'm so sorry that you have had to go through all of these things in your life but I'm really grateful that the community has you to rely on and to share your experience and knowledge with. So thank you so much for that. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me, Amber. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you. Hey, super listener. Thanks to Clemmy Oliver for all her work in helping patients navigate their journey with nutrition and IBD, as well as taking the time to talk with me about it. 
You can find Clemmy and her team at the Nutrition and Lifestyle Medicine Clinic at nalmclinic.com. That is N-A-L-M-C-L-I-N-I-C.com. And she's on Instagram at Clemmy Oliver Nutrition and Facebook as Nalm Clinic. Links to a written transcript, everyone's social media handles, and more information on the topics we discussed is in the show notes and on my episode 137 page on aboutibd.com. You can follow me, Amber Tresca, across all social media as About IBD. Thanks for listening. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. About IBD is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Mix and sound design is by Mac Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio. Oh, 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 oh